Time for our daily news briefing. Joined in the studio by Seomi Sarang. Good morning to you. Good morning, Henry. Good morning. We're going to begin with a COVID-19 update uh, starting in the U.S. You know, often sometimes the challenge is when you're citing um, foreign media articles, especially the ones in the Korean language. There's mm-hmm. a bit of a game of telephone going on because these Korean reporters kind of get their sources from various news agencies and then they write their stories. But sometimes the facts get mixed up right. or there's a bit of confusion. And initially there was this report coming out um, where I've seen where uh, they cited 200,000 yeah. new infections. But they were uh, gauging this from some metric of a 24-hour period, not mm-hmm. the standard uh, official announcement that comes out that tallies the daily totals, right, right uh, where you have various uh, uh, sites like uh, Johns Hopkins or Worldometer mm-hmm. or, or, or all these various sites. But as it stands right now, officially speaking, I mean, we're not trying to dismiss the numbers at all oh, because right, right. it is still a very serious situation. Mm-hmm. The U.S. continues to break record after record on a daily basis, hitting another record high of daily new infections, 146 thousand uh, from what we understand Wednesday local time? That's right. So this comes just a week after the country hit 100,000 cases for the first time. According to the Washington Post's latest counts, at least 65,000 Americans are hospitalized with COVID-19 as well. Now, the rate at which these numbers are growing is especially alarming Mm. because in just the past week, new daily reported cases rose by 35%, deaths by 14%, and hospitalizations by 25%. Also, the number of accumulated cases in the country sits at 10.8 million, which is a bit over 3% of the total U.S. population. Meanwhile, several European states have been averaging over 30,000 new infections every day. According to the latest numbers from Worldometer, France and Italy reported 36 and 33,000 new cases, respectively, on Thursday. So the good news is, at least for those that believe in science, uh, there is a new administration coming in that uh, strongly states that they will support medical officials and scientists, mm-hmm. and the new Biden administration incoming has already set up a uh, coronavirus task force with uh, leading experts on it. The bad news is that transition doesn't take place until next January. Yeah. And the big concern in the U.S. right now, and similarly here to um, our Chuseok holidays where everyone was traveling, uh, albeit in lesser numbers, is uh, Thanksgiving is coming upon us in the U.S. And this is a centuries-old tradition of people traveling to visit their families, Mm -hmm. gathering together. The official guideline is just stay within your nuclear family. And so, right, if you have uh, mom, dad, and the kids having Thanksgiving, but extended family, uh, friends, other outside people should really not be together in an Mm -hmm. enclosed space, especially because people haven't been abiding by these social distancing guidelines to begin with, and that there is a concern that there could be another super spreader event where already, if you're already at 146,000 per day, and these numbers expected to go up potentially to um, 200,000 even by official counts, uh, it's it's a worrisome situation, and you just kind of wonder how many people would actually abide by that, because again, the the pull to be able to uh, be with your families and this pent-up sort of fatigue that already has set in, it just seems like a very... uh, Very tough situation Mm. for Americans right now. Let's talk about the situation then in Korea because we are concerned about things going on right now. But to get some perspective, our new infection rates are uh, basically one one hundredth of uh, the U.S. right now in terms of uh, daily new infection 
cases. Uh, nevertheless, we are also going through a little bit of a negative trend line, right? Yeah, one one thousandth. So be- one one thousand. The KDCA they confirmed 143 new cases yesterday. raising the cumulative total to 27,942. Now, of the new infections, 128 were local transmissions, while 15 were imported. Now, many local cases were linked to sporadic cluster infections in the Greater Seoul area, and the death toll remains unchanged at 487. Now, as you mentioned in the program opening, Henry, starting today under expanded safety measures, People who do not wear protective masks in public places and on public transportation will be fined up to 100,000 won. And ineffective mesh or valve-type masks will not be considered appropriate. So even if you are saying you're masked up, but if you're wearing one of those mesh type of masks, then you would still be subject to the fine. Absolutely. What, What I've heard from epidemiologists is that Although there is a lot of optimism with this new vaccine and Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully it will be uh, available to the wider public uh, sometime in the latter half of next year. uh, They're saying that the issue of wearing masks just simply won't go away because uh, even if you are vaccinated, apparently you would still be susceptible to to spreading the virus. And that's why the mask wearing is still necessary, at least for uh, the vulnerable members of the population that still haven't been vaccinated yet. Right. That is the very important Unclear part. Even with the Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine, we do not know if it is actually treating the patient or actually preventing them from going on to further infect. So, even if the vaccines are rolled out, mask wearing definitely right. will stay in place for good. Yeah, and so uh, just be aware and don't be caught off guard. I, I mean, I think it wouldn't be necessarily malicious attempt, but if if you haven't forgotten your mask or. Uh, If you are in a public space and you simply put your mask down for uh, an unnecessary reason, you are now subject to that 100,000 won fine. So uh, certainly a a big deterrent effect now. But uh, the overriding goal is to to keep this virus under control. And uh, unfortunately, there will be a little bit of a liability there for people who aren't abiding. Let's uh, turn to the president and this ongoing efforts uh, with diplomacy after the uh, big U.S. presidential elections. President Moon Jae-in and the U.S. president-elect Joe Biden finally held their phone conversation. They did, and during their 14-minute phone conversation, the leaders of the two countries reaffirmed their shared commitments toward one, strengthening their alliance, and two, toward North Korea's denuclearization. Biden described Korea as a linchpin of security and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region and said that he would, quote, closely cooperate for a resolution to the North Korean nuclear issue. Moon thanked Biden for the, quote, interest and respect that he has shown for the Korea-U.S. alliance and cited Biden paying respects at the Korean War Memorial in Philadelphia on Wednesday. The president-elect had made a brief trip to the memorial in his birth state as the U.S. observed its Veterans Day holiday on Wednesday. Now, in terms of what was left out of the conversation this time, a Tongwade official said that Moon and Biden did not talk about the protracted diplomatic dispute between South Korea and Japan or the Seoul Trade Minister Yoo Myung-hee's bid for the leadership of the World Trade Organization. Moon and Biden agreed to expand their cooperation on global issues, including the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change, and agreed to meet for summit talks soon after Biden's inauguration in January. Right. And to be honest, uh, with these diplomatic phone calls, uh, 
the, you see these kind of broad, very vague kind of niceties, right? Yeah. Uh, the alliance <laughs> is strong, and uh, we will continue to uh, uh, work together for a resolution <laughs> to have peace on the Korean, Korean Peninsula. Peninsula. So, <laughs> you're never going to hear anything earth-shattering right. in this. Even Trump, with his kind of volatile, mm. weird rhetoric, whenever there was a report of phone conversations, um, it was pretty vanilla. And yeah. it really does indicate that the aides basically prepare the entire conversation right. beforehand. And in many cases, already have the press releases ready to right. come out uh, uh, even before these uh, conversations take place. So, so that's where it stands. But the important aspect of this is that the phone call took place. Uh, there's, there was some reporting in the Korean media that unfortunately kind of harped on these kind of insignificant facts that, oh, uh, Suga in Japan was able to get this conversation 30 minutes yeah. before um, Moon Jae-in was able to with Joe Biden. The order of who yeah, spoke to right. Biden and, first. And yeah. Chang-wan did say right away that, well, we actually requested the 9, 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. schedule. So right. that was actually them actually um, uh, adhering to our request. Mm-hmm. And then much was made about, oh, it's just a 14-minute conversation. Other leaders had like 20-minute conversations and 30-minute conversations. So... Kind of trying to knock maybe the uh, Blue House diplomatic prowess in mm-hmm. all of this. And you kind of hope that we could get past the ideas of where we stack up with other things yeah. and, and how uh, it is perceived to be a loss of face if mm-hmm. there is uh, a little bit less time given here. I mean, the important thing is really getting the relationship started and obviously uh, being on the same page. And uh, that will, I guess, be something we'll, we'll discuss a little later on when we talk about China's efforts to maybe try to maintain their influence in the region. But for Biden himself, he is busy trying to uh, get a team together and get his uh, policies in fact and his agenda uh, sort of in place before the uh, January inauguration. However, the Trump administration is making it as difficult as mm-hmm. possible. Uh, even some, uh, I would say, reasonable-minded people feeling some pettiness going on. The Trump administration is even going so far as blocking the transition team from getting access to the congratulatory yeah. messages from foreign leaders to the president-elect. Right, so these messages and these phone calls are being lined up and the messages are sitting there at the State Department. Conventionally, the State Department supports all communication for the president-elect. For example, during the Bush to Obama transition, the Bush administration's state operations uh, placed calls and provided translation services for the Obama team. But because of the unique situation that we're in, Biden's team is reaching out to foreign foreign governments without that logistical and translation support from the State Department that it usually provides. Now, the irony here is that as a former VP, at any other point since Biden left the White House, he actually would have been able to call into the State Department Operations Center to place a call to foreign leaders. Hmm. But now that he's a president-elect, he's been prevented from using that facility by the Trump administration. Now, as you mentioned, Henry, most of these messages, they're pretty vanilla. They're congratulatory messages. They don't have, they don't contain any sensitive information. But what's more worrying is that Biden is also blocked from getting access to intelligence briefings at a time when adversaries know that the country is most vulnerable to security threats during that transition period. Now, in the midst of all this chaos, Biden has been pressing ahead preparations to assume his presidency, despite President Trump's various attempts to hinder a smooth transition. 
Biden has named Ron Klain as his White House chief of staff, and Klain is well known for his role as the President Obama's Ebola Tsar during a minor outbreak of this mm. deadly disease back in 2014. Right. So a couple of things here. First, with the blocking of these messages coming in from foreign leaders, perhaps that was already baked into many people's minds uh, in terms of the, the, the petty move by the Trump administration uh, to not allow Biden to receive those. Because if you've noticed on Twitter, you saw a flurry of tweets from people like Merkel, Macron, yeah. <laughs> Justin Trudeau. And so you could, on the one hand, say, okay, because Trump is so online and mm-hmm. he's always on Twitter, it's a, sort of a subtle hint to Trump, hey, look, we know you lost here and that's the leader. But it's also probably the fact that, hey, uh, our, our letter in the mail probably didn't get to you, so yeah. we're going to have to use Twitter <laughs> to really convey the uh, congratulations. Yeah. And so he got the messages. And so uh, it's not really a big deal. As you say, the bigger deal is... Uh, and this was actually cited by the uh, former chief of staff of the uh, George W. Bush administration as they were incoming, is that things like, remember the 9-11 terror attacks mm, in yeah. 2001, mm-hmm. really early in the George W. Bush administration, that kind of intelligence is key right. to have as a team, especially for national security purposes, for any kind of uh, malicious activity that might be going on. The incoming chief of staff of the Biden administration, uh, Ron Klain, uh, considered to be one of the closest confidants. If you've been following U.S. politics, is he's been really a longtime aide. He was a former, actually, chief of staff of the uh, former Vice President Al Gore. Uh, he's been a longtime sort of uh, political hand in Democratic circles. He was the chief of staff for uh, Vice President Joe Biden when uh, Biden was vice president to Obama. And so really is known as a guy that is able to Uh, be effective in his job, but also speak truth to Biden and kind of give his honest thoughts. And uh, as you say, he's really highly uh, touted for what he did as the uh, so-called Ebola czar. And although many Americans don't really remember the Ebola uh, crisis, it's because the administration at that time handled the outbreak Mm -hmm. so effectively that uh, people don't really uh, think of it too much as it stands right now, which is obviously in big contrast to the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But going back with, to what we kind of briefly alluded to earlier in terms of all of this diplomacy, especially with uh, the incoming Biden administration in the United States, Chinese President Xi Jinping, who had been sort of a little ambiguous in terms of his intent and uh, timing and scheduling of this uh, very important visit to South Korea, has now indeed uh, kind of maybe started moving things a little bit more mm-hmm. quickly. He is now expected to visit South Korea, apparently, uh, Definitely before the end of this year. Right. So these are not official announcements, but diplomatic sources in Beijing, they say that Xi's delayed visit will likely happen between the end of November and the middle of December. Now, Xi Jinping, he was originally scheduled to visit Seoul during the first half of this year, but the trip was shelved due to the coronavirus pandemic. On an August visit to Busan, China's top diplomat, Yang Jiqi, he told National Security Advisor Seo Hun that Seoul is at the top of the list of countries Xi Jinping would visit once the pandemic was under control. Now, pundits speculate two main reasons for why Beijing seemingly Hmm. uh, might want to rush to make the visit. One is that Beijing's relations with other regional powers, including India, Japan and Australia, they have all gone south in recent months over issues like the national security law in Hong Kong and China's, quote, wolf warrior diplomacy. 
The other is that China could be looking to seize this special time window between the Trump and Biden administrations, as Biden's focus on strengthening existing alliances could make it harder for Beijing to step in. Meanwhile, Foreign Minister of Korea Kang Kyung-hwa, she told reporters on her way back home from Washington that the two sides plan to settle on an exact date once the COVID-19 situation gets under control. All right. So uh, once uh, these uh, schedules become more uh, official, we will definitely talk about it then. Today is a, a very momentous occasion here in Korea's labor history. And yesterday, uh, President Moon Jae-in Misorang posthumously awarded the highest state medal to the famed labor activist Chun Tae-il. That's right. Chun Tae-il, one of the most important figures in South Korea's labor history. Exactly five decades earlier to this day, Chun, a 22-year-old tailor at the time, he immolated himself in protest of better pay and better working conditions at his textile company. So yesterday, Moon awarded the Bugunghwa Medal of, of the Order of Civil Merit to Chun, uh, or Chun's during a ceremony at Changwadae that comes on the eve of the country's annual commemoration of Chun's death. Now, as the presidential office pointed out, the Bugunghwa Medal is the highest ranking of five medals that make up the Order of Civil Merit, and Chun Tae-il is the first labor activist to receive it. During the post-ceremony meeting, Moon said that the medal also symbolizes his government's administration's commitment to achieving a society that respects labor. In our second hour, we are going to uh, devote some time to uh, John Taylor, the commemoration, his life, and sort of the legacy that he leaves behind, including the legacy of this continuous effort to improve working conditions uh, in the modern age. Uh, that mm-hmm. would be uh, largely with delivery workers. And yeah. so now there are some new guidelines to improve their lot. Yes, the Labor and Transport Ministries, they jointly made the announcement yesterday. And the new measures, roughly threefold, they include limiting delivery services after 10 p.m. for daytime couriers, adopting a five-day work week, and setting the maximum daily working hours. The government will also crack down on unfair business practices such as logistic companies slashing the fee per parcel delivered to pay rebates to product sellers and also coercing workers to opt out of health insurance. All right. We do have one more story, and really this uh, continuous struggle for some closure. 34 citizens joining the survivor of the uh, Sewol Ferry sinking, uh, demanding that the president investigate the truth and punish the people responsible. So yesterday's occasion also marks the 34th day of Kim Sung-muk's hunger strike in front of the Blue House. The 44-year-old was the very last person to be rescued from the sinking ship and is in the midst of an indefinite hunger strike to call the government to take action. During a press conference, 34 citizens expressed their support for Kim Sung-muk and said that there is a year left in the Moon Jae-in presidency and only about five months till the statute of limitations on Seoul ferry sinking expires, but that nothing has been revealed yet. In particular, the collective called for the establishment of a special investigative body under the direct order of the president, one that has access to all information on the maritime disaster that is currently, according to them, scattered among different government agencies, including the Defense Security Command and the NIS. Right. We still have some time in Moon Jae-in's term, so uh, this certainly can be done, especially with that uh, statute of limitations uh, deadline. Right on the dot. Perfect timing, uh, Mizorang. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week. See you next week, Henry.